0: Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos D'Avelis. European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen vowed to bring the economies of the Western Balkans and the European Union closer on Monday as she began a four-day tour of the region. Her plan includes a €6 billion euro investment package to be delivered on condition that countries make reforms to open up their economies, overcome their conflicts, and modernize their administrations. Professor James Kerlinze, who has written extensively on the EU, the Balkans, and Southeastern Europe, joins me to break down whether this is a window of opportunity to reinvigorate the EU accession process for the Western Balkans. James, thanks for joining us again.
1: Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: James, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is on a four-day visit in the Western Balkans, and she kicked off her trip pledging to deliver a 6 billion euro investment package to the region. How significant could this investment be?
1: Well, I think, you know, we have to consider it against the backdrop of the way that the EU's relationship has developed in the Western Balkans in recent years. So, you know, we all remember, well, those of us of a certain age remember, you know, that at the start of the new millennium, especially in, in 2003 in Thessaloniki, that what we saw is the European Union making this massive commitment to the Western Balkans to take it in. and And now we're 20 years later and we've seen a couple of the countries join – But it's really been a story of too much stagnation, especially over the past decade. And there's also been a sense that the European Union has gone rather cold on enlargement into the Western Balkans. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is that the European Union is now trying to say that it understands that it's let the region slip and that this has had especially uh, fairly significant political consequences, and I think wants to reinvigorate the relationship and take forward the process of EU integration. I think, you know, what we're seeing at the moment with this trip by von der Leyen to the region is trying to send out that message that the Western Balkans still matters to the EU and that it wants to see how it can push forward with that partnership in a new and better way than we've certainly seen over at least the past five years, but really I think even the past ten
0: years. I'd like to stick with this package that von der Leyen proposed. You know, how would this EU growth plan work essentially? You know, is this offer a window of opportunity to use von der Leyen's words for the region to get closer to the EU?
1: Yes. I mean, I think you know that there's several factors that we need to consider when we're thinking about how the Western Balkans interacts with the European Union. So as we know that there's this process of EU enlargement, and what this requires is a fairly substantial and prolonged process of integration and alignment with EU legislation. And that covers, you know, the whole gamut of different areas. But it also includes some fairly significant top-level political changes that have got to be introduced. So it's not just about, and I, I have to work this word in because I love using it, it's not about phytosanitary certification, as important as phytosanitary certification is, and making sure that agricultural produce is up to the right health and safety standards. It also means things like tackling corruption. It means about having proper political systems in place, full respect for human rights. And it's very telling that in recent years, the European Union has placed issues to do with justice, home affairs, rule of law, right at the top of the agenda for any new countries coming in. So I think what we've been seeing is that it's that element that's incredibly important and where there feels like there's been a bit of a lag behind. But it is also the nuts and bolts of integration. It is, again, about making sure that the whole body of laws in these countries align with the European Union. You know, one thing you'll often hear is people will say, why can't the EU just push faster on, you know, taking in the countries of the Western Balkans? We know it's important for stability. Why doesn't it just take it in now and let them become full members or adapt once they're in? And that fundamentally shows a misunderstanding about how the European Union works. It's about making sure that the standards of one country... Are applicable to all so that you don't have this undercutting that you can be sure that if something is produced in Lithuania it's going to be up to standards that is accepted across the entire European Union or if a product is grown in Greece that you know it's going to be of the right standard that it's going to meet these sort of demands across the European Union and taking in countries that aren't ready to do that yet actually fundamentally undermines the basic structure of the European Union, especially on the single market, which is such an important part of the European Union. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is the European Union is trying to give this a push. It's trying to say, look, you've got to work harder towards this. We want to reinvigorate that process. There's money coming in and also offering the chance to increase trade between the the Western Balkans and the rest of the European Union, which is obviously the way that the European Union approaches a lot of these issues. So it's a big thing that we're seeing at the moment. Now, of course, some people are going to say it's not enough, that the EU needs to do more. You're always going to have to say that, but measured against the way that things have been in recent years, I think, you know, we can perhaps say, look, this is at least a welcome first step of renewed interest, if you like, from the European Union.
0: As you laid out, James, you know, a lot of this hinges on the countries in the Western Balkans making political reforms and opening up their economies. Are these countries taking these steps, though?
1: Well, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, But what's what's also been very interesting and a very controversial approach in all of this is that while they've been waiting to get into the European Union, which we have to be realistic, is going to be a very long-term process. I can remember around 2017, you know, there was a lot of talk that Serbia, Montenegro could potentially be members of the European Union by 2025. You know, we're getting to the end of 2023. We know that in the case of Croatia, which was the last country to join the European Union, the ratification alone took almost two years. Serbia and and Montenegro are still quite a way off from finishing up the negotiations because it's not just about the negotiations themselves. It's not just that you say yes, we will create these laws or even passing the necessary laws. The European Union wants to see that the countries are implementing them and implementing them effectively. So there's a verification process, if you like. And so we are a long way off. So I think even at the most ambitious, even if suddenly everything changed, we're probably not talking Montenegro and Serbia joining the European Union at least, at least until 2020s. 728. And that's probably ambitious. I mean, you know, we're probably looking towards the end of the decade now. So it's quite a long way off. But there is this need to show that there is still this commitment that the countries are going to join and trying to push forward with that and keep them engaged. And I mean, of course, you can imagine the problem is unless you've got a clear indication that you're going to join, then interest starts to wane. And this is one of the problems I think the European Union has recognised, is that levels of support for EU membership are still relatively high in many of the Western Balkan countries, but there is a sense of fatigue that's sort of starting to set in, that, you know, this has been a very long process, they don't seem to be any closer. And especially in Serbia, for a whole range of reasons, in actual fact, support for European Union membership is significantly down to the point that, you know, we could well be in minority territory in terms of popular support for EU membership. So I, I think also this is having an effect.
0: Von der Leyen also visited Pristina and stated essentially that further EU integration is dependent on the normalization of relations between Serbia and Kosovo. With this conflict having escalated recently, James, is there any indication that this obstacle can be overcome?
1: I mean... You know, as much as I'd like to be an optimist on this and say that, look, you know, there is certainly a path through this. And I think from a a theoretical perspective, if you like, it's quite clear how we can get to a settlement of this issue. But from a very practical perspective, unfortunately, you know, we're in a very, very bad place at the moment. And there's a whole range of complications that can be kicked in. But I think what we've seen certainly most recently, is there is a lot of irritation, frustration with the way that Kosovo's Prime Minister, Albin Kurti, has been handling things. That he's come to be seen as a very obstructive element. There's also been a lot of concern about the way that he seems to want to try to use force to impose the authority and sovereignty of Kosovo's government. Over the north, and of course, this has led to a major backlash. And what we've seen is that there was a very, very serious incident recently where there was a shootout between Serbian—well, I mean, call them what you want. I mean, you know, Pristina would call them Serbian terrorists; others would call them Serbian militants. We don't know exactly what was behind it or who is behind it, but there's been all sorts of speculation. But this has all actually gone to show that we're in a very, very dangerous point in Kosovo at the moment and I think there is a real sense of concern about the way things are developing and and of course Pristina argues that this is all Belgrade's doing it may well be but also I think there is a body of thought that says that it's not in the best interest of President Vucic of Serbia to be causing these sorts of tensions at the moment you know this does a lot of damage to Serbia and if it comes out that he authorized the transport of arms into Kosovo to arm the Kosovo Serbs that is going to be enormously damaging But as we know from these situations, it might well be the fact that other elements in Serbian society, for example, in the security forces, who are sympathetic to the Kosovo Serbs, have been quietly doing this. And what we have now is a very, very tense situation between Pristina that seems intent on using armed force to try and impose its authority on the north, and a Serbian community which is becoming increasingly militant and arming itself in order to stop that. So you can see exactly why there is growing concern at the moment. But all this means that we need to have a more concerted push for a settlement between Belgrade and Pristina. But the trouble is, you just don't see the political will there. And and more to the point, the personal chemistry, I think, between Aleksandr Vucic, the Serbian president, and Albin Kurti, the Kosovo prime minister, is terrible. Funnily enough, Vucic and and Hashim Thaci, who was the previous Kosovo leader, was much better and much more constructive. And that has all disappeared. And Kirti is a very difficult character in all sorts of ways. I mean, some would say Vucic is as well, but Kirti is particularly difficult. So I think we have a very complex situation at the moment, which is actually becoming very worrying in terms of the fact that we have this armed element. You know, and just speaking with somebody a bit earlier, I mean, I I think it's fairly safe to say that tensions are higher now than they have been at any point since Kosovo declared independence
0: in 2008. James, moving south from Kosovo to North Macedonia, which was another country that von der Leyen visited, the government there has been taking steps aimed at lifting Bulgaria's veto on its EU accession aspirations. But these changes are being blocked in North Macedonia by the main Conservative Opposition Party. Do you see North Macedonia seizing on this opportunity to move the process forward, or do you think that it's stuck in the mud?
1: I mean, you know, as somebody who's worked on the Western Balkans for, you know, a large part of my career, I have to say that this dispute between Bulgaria and North Macedonia is... Quite, you know, I'm going to get it from, if you have any Bulgarian listeners, but, you know, I have some very, you know, it's, it's that wonderful line, some of my best friends are Bulgarian, and literally they are, but we do argue over this, because I think this is an extraordinarily petty issue in so many ways that we've seen between North Macedonia and Bulgaria. And for anyone who might not know, I mean, it boils down to a number of different things, but essentially it can be put down to the fact that Bulgaria has had long-standing disputes with the concept of a Macedonian identity now this to many of your listeners Greek listeners especially they might sort of say yes we well we get that where Bulgaria is coming from but it's rather interesting because you know the Bulgarians will often argue that essentially the Macedonian identity was something that was cooked up within Titoist Yugoslavia and essentially the Macedonians are part of the wider Bulgarian nation I mean Macedonians can get uh, Bulgarian passports And so there's also disputes over historical figures, the name of the language. As I say, it's a very, very frustrating issue. I think many in the European Union have been fed up by this. They hope that once the name issue had been resolved satisfactorily, that then, you know, the way would have been open then for North Macedonia to be able to push ahead with its EU membership. And then they encounter this problem with Bulgaria. But the reality is, as Greeks know... Every single member of the European Union has a right to control who else joins the European Union, and Sofia has decided to make an issue out of this. And so after we saw the name issue resolved between Greece and North Macedonia, between Athens and Skopje, now we have this issue, and the reality is we're going to have to find a solution to it that Sofia can live with. But you can imagine it's a very tense issue, especially for the right wing in any country, having already felt that they'd made fairly significant moves on the question of the country's name now to be presented with the whole raft of other issues on identity is making it very difficult so it's an unfortunate issue that frankly i think the region just didn't need you know the hope was that once the name issue was solved then we could concentrate on getting kosovo sorted out and then finally deal with the granddaddy of all the balkan issues which is the deadlock in bosnia so you know anything that complicates all of this is is frankly just not very welcome
0: James, as we wrap up, you know, how can a country like Greece, which is in fact the oldest EU and NATO member in the region, help move the process towards EU integration forward in the Western Balkans?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, this is one of those really interesting situations because, of course, going back to the start of our conversation was that, you know, that Greece was at one stage the preeminent voice sort of would be the interlocutor between the Western Balkans and the rest of the European Union. It would be the voice of the European Union in the Western Balkans and would also be able to communicate Western Balkans sort of concerns, sensibilities to the European Union. And in many ways, it was quite interesting because Austria also vied for that role and they were sort of coming in from the north and the south, if you like, of the region and were quite competitive. But then, of course, we saw a lost decade in the case of Greece you know, where it was overcome with its own internal issues. And I think that there's always been a sense that sort of Greece trying to re-establish that role and have that sort of voice and be that significant actor in the Western Balkans. You know, and I I think a lot of us who have looked at it have felt that Greece can actually be an, an incredibly important and constructive partner in that process, that, you know, it's managed to forge good relations with a number of the countries in the region... You know, now that the name issue has been resolved was an incredibly important step forward in all of this. The fact is that Athens has extremely good relations with Pristina, even though it still doesn't recognise Kosovo. It has extremely good relations with Belgrade as well. So, you know, Greece is in a very good position to be able to capitalise on it and push ahead. So I think, you know, there is this sense that, you know, Greece is still a lucky actor in all of this. So looked at from an outsider's perspective, it's good to see sort of Greece sort of getting back and much more active in the region.
0: James, always great speaking with you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Lovely talking to you too. Yeah.
0: In other news, Cyprus on Tuesday said it was in talks with parties in the Middle East and the EU over its suggestion to establish a humanitarian aid corridor from the island to Gaza. Nicosia is pursuing the option as fighting rages for a fourth week between Israel and Hamas, deepening a humanitarian crisis in the enclave. President Christodoulidis, who spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu on Tuesday, said that Nicosia's proposal has been received positively by world leaders. Details of how the corridor would work, including which authority would be running it and security issues, were still being discussed, sources said. Finally, Greek development minister Kostas Skrekas said on Tuesday at the Athens Investment Forum that the government's aim is the maintenance of sustainable growth rates, adding that Greece can't rely only on tourism. Skrekas underlined that the government's strategic plan is to turn the country into an energy and technology hub. The minister pointed out the significant progress made in the field of renewable energy, adding that the government offers the necessary political stability for the maintenance of sustainable growth rates in parallel with meeting the targets for environmental protection. Furthermore, he noted that Greece may become one of the two most important technological hubs of Southern Europe. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in.